Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market and finery in the stone walls of the white chamber. At one end of the chamber, the young 21-year-old Richard is sitting on his raised throne. On his right are arrayed the prelates, the churchmen of the realm. On his left are all the secular lords. The atmosphere was nervous and expectant. The king is visibly uncomfortable and worried. The great doors into the chamber are flung open. Five men stride into the room. They're wearing cloth of gold, a display of their power and their wealth. These are great magnates of the realm. Their arms are linked in solidarity as they stride towards the king. Welcome, everyone to the History of England, episode 125, Accusatio. These men are the Duke of Lancaster, the Earls of Derby, Warwick, Arundel and Nottingham. They are the Lords Appellant. They'd come to publicly accuse or appeal the men around the King who they claimed had usurped his authority and led him astray though really it was the king they blamed. So, how had we got to this pretty pass? Last time, we'd covered a few years of Richard's reign, and frankly, things weren't going terribly well. It's tense out there, very tense. In Richard's court, after the arrival of Anne of Bohemia, really things had once seemed very gay and very continental. Anne had brought a load of exotic people with her from Central Europe. Everyone had been wearing fitted clothes, silly pointy shoes and hats that Bob Dylan would have been proud of. There's been Eastern European ladies wandering around playing music and dancing. Richard had even invented something called the pocket handkerchief, 
which was an exciting development in the world of personal hygiene. I have always been deeply grateful for the concept of a bit of material always on hand for all kinds of cleaning tasks. Noses, clearly, but also glasses with the added benefit of a thin veneer of snot, spillages of tea, oil dipstick wiping and so on. Truly one of the great inventions. Anyway, the council appointed in 1385 had come in and changed all of that fun. Many of the ladies had been packed off back to Bohemia, whence they'd come in the name of economy. Richard was not a man to bear a grudge for more than 10 or 12 millennia, but he had been preparing himself because he saw a storm coming. Last time, just to remind you, we started talking about some of the dramatis personae of the next few years, and I am ever mindful of the problems of names. So we're going to keep repeating stuff, and try not to be too dull about it, but possibly slightly dull. We have three major players against the Lords at this point, who had challenged Richard at the wonderful Parliament in 1386. The Duke of Gloucester, the King's uncle, and the Earls of Arundel and Warwick. Together these three had brought some of his friends down. The other two appellants I mentioned are the Earls of Derby, otherwise known as Henry Bolingbroke, son of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, and Thomas Mowbray, the Earl of Nottingham, who from now on shall be called Diego. Who were these men, and why were they so grumpy? Well, there are the political reasons, and then there are the other, more personal motivations. So let's first have a quick recap of the public reasons for those of you who were asleep last time. Well, really, it's not much more than that traditional graveyard of kings, the failure to manage patronage effectively, to keep the great men of the realm comfortable and in balance. Richard had relied on and rewarded his mates far too much. His old friend and confidant, Simon Burley, Michael de la Poole, Earl of Suffolk, who had already been turfed out of his job by the king's enemies and the young Robert de Vere, Earl of Oxford, and absolutely outrageously made Duke of Ireland. Duke of what? Come on! Surely dukes were only supposed to be a royal blood. This was an outrage, ladies and gents. An outrage. There were more personal motivations too, of course. First of all, there are the three senior appellants, Gloucester, Warwick and Arundel. We've heard quite a bit about Thomas of Woodstock, the Duke of Gloucester, Edward III's son, and Richard's uncle. He's unhappy, and he's unhappy because he feels life hasn't dealt him all the cards that he might have hoped for. He's the son of a king, and the son of the glorious Edward III to boot, whose star burned so brightly. And yet, he's penniless. He's basically dependent on the state for handouts, so he's probably motivated mainly by self-interest. Essentially, he wants a larger piece of the pie. Of course, he may also be worried about the wisdom of Richard's administration so far. Thomas Beecham, Earl of Warwick, also had a personal grievance. Richard had started messing with land and power in his traditional heartlands in the Midlands, and he was having none of it. That was where he was king. And finally, Richard Fitzalan, Earl of Arundel, on the other hand, appeared to have few personal reasons to object to Richard, and appeared to be genuinely motivated by concern for the public good. 
Now, the other two appellants, Henry Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray, the Earl of Nottingham, were much younger, 21 and 20 respectively. They were Richard's contemporaries. Nottingham comes across, I am forced to admit, as a bit of a jealous courtier type. He's been one of those close to the king at one point, and once had a lot of influence, but he'd watched as de Vere took his place and pushed all other competition aside. And then finally, there's the dashing Bolingbroke, son of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. Crucially, Gaunt himself was away at this time of crisis, and therefore Henry was head of the Lancaster clan. Now, it's unlikely that Richard regretted Gaunt's absence, but in fact he should have done, since Gaunt had proved consistently loyal. But as it happens, Gaunt was away trying to make his dodgy claims to the throne of Castile stick. Bolingbroke was the darling of the tournament, already the model of a medieval knight, with an inquiring, strong and intellectual mind thrown in. So what's his beef? Again, it seems mainly self-interest. De Vere was messing around with the Lancaster heartlands in Chester. Plus, Henry and Richard never really got on on a personal level. And then there's the succession thing. Now, you may remember that Gaunt had persuaded Edward III to stipulate in his will that the succession would go through the male line, which had made Gaunt next in line after Richard, and Bolingbroke after that, of course. Now, Richard had changed that and made it back to the normal rules, i.e. priority simply to the elder line, never mind if it was through a bloke or a woman. This meant the two little Mortimer boys were now next in line, and that can't have made Bolingbroke any happier. Then late in autumn of 1387, Gloucester and his pals learned about the council with his judges that Richard had run. They'd heard that the judges had pronounced Gloucester's action against de la Pole illegal and treasonous. Whoa! And indeed, dude. Sometime around this time, Gloucester was forced to stand in front of the king at court and swear his loyalty, and swear he'd never been a troublemaker, would never be a troublemaker, and farted in the general direction of troublemaking. Gloucester was of course a troublemaker to the core, and Richard was not the trusting type. So once Gloucester had gone, Richard ordered Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, to march straight down to arrest Gloucester's closest ally, the Earl of Arundel. But when Northumberland appeared at Arundel's castle, the gates were closed, and Arundel was pretty clear, to be fair, about his views on opening them to let Northumberland inside. So, once Northumberland had recognised the futility of sitting around outside the castle eating bonbons, he'd gone about his business. And Arundel got down to the business of panicking, and on the 13th of November 1387, he and his retinue of men were at Waltham Cross to the north of London, along with Gloucester and Warwick. A place called Waltham Cross, of course, because of Edward III's cross to commemorate the homecoming of wife Eleanor's body and one of the few that's still surviving now. Anyway, as yet, neither of the two younger men, Bolingbroke and Nottingham, were prepared to make the final commitment. So often a problem with young men, I'm told. So it was Gloucester, Warwick and Arundel who issued the accusatio. The accusation against the traitors that surrounded the king. They appealed to the king to remove them from his councils, and from now on they became known as the Lord's Appellant.
they appealed five people. At the top of the list is Robert de Vere, Duke of Ireland of, for crying out loud, the Duke of Ireland, I mean, he's nobody, fame. De La Poole, Robert Tresillian, the Chief Justice. Nicholas Brembra, now Mayor of London, interestingly enough, you'll remember him from the Peasants' Revolt. And the rather irascible and hardline Archbishop of York, Alexander Neville. Back at the Palace of Westminster, Richard was shocked at the speed of events and possibly a little weepy. The council and Richard's closest pals all met, and all manner of responses were discussed, all the way through to asking the French for help. Which is interesting. Really, Richard is more Henry III than Edward III. He really never gets this Hundred Years' War thing. As far as he's concerned, the French king is a brother in kingship. Should they really be arguing? It's the little people who need keeping in line, isn't it? However, wiser heads prevailed, and instead they went for jaw-jaw rather than war-war. But it's worth noting that Richard learned a lesson. It's quite possible he never expected things to get to this. He's the king, after all. His relatively young head has been stuffed with nonsense by Burley since he was a nipper, and I figure he expected these magnates to buckle under and say, Yes, right you are, sir. Sorry. Tug forelock and be gone. So he learned from the whole experience. Anyway, before you could say Jack Robinson, the three senior Lords Appellant, so just Gloucester, Arundel and Warwick at this point, remember, were riding into Westminster, accompanied by 300 burly men. There in Westminster Hall, with Richard on his throne in hollow majesty, they read out a challenge to the five royal advisers, de Vere, de la Poole, Tresillian, Brembera and the Archbishop Neville, to trial by combat. Now, obviously, this was just a form in this case, but it forced Richard to agree to hold the trial in Parliament, and a date of the 3rd of February 1388 was set. The reaction of Richard's nearest and dearest varied. De La Poole, Tresillian and the Archbishop ran away and hid. Nicholas Brembera demonstrated that once you face down the fishmongers, you have nothing more to fear from life or indeed to achieve. So he stayed right where he was. So that's flight and staying put, but the youthful, naive and possibly romantic de Vere chose to fight for his friend and king. Richard was determined not to be shackled, and you can picture it. The castle at Windsor, two young men swearing to fight together and prevail over all the odds. Richard wrote letters and marked them with his seal, and de Vere ran for Chester, the heartland of Richard's father, the Black Prince's power. He took with him one Thomas Molyneux, constable of Chester Castle, and there in Chester the two men put together an army of three to 4,000 men of Cheshire, and they started to march south to rescue the king and destroy the power of the appellant bullies. At this point, Bolingbroke and Nottingham could no longer afford to sit on the fence, and on the 12th of December they joined Gloucester, Warwick and Arundel at Huntingdon for a full and frank exchange of views. The topic of debate was whether or not to depose the perfidious Richard or not. And it's Gloucester probably leading the running in all of this. If they chose to take down Richard, it would be him, Uncle Gloucester, who would most likely be successor, even if he was not formally next in line. But Warwick talked him round. De Vere was their enemy, he said, not Richard. And at this stage, they might well have thought that De Vere was acting on his own. 
Anywho, de Vere and Molyneux came south. I suspect their army was nervous, because it seems that the appellants split their army, Gloucester coming from the north and Bolingbroke from the south. Now I'm no military man, but you'd have thought that if their armies were in any way a similar size, by splitting themselves up, the appellants had laid themselves open to being beaten piecemeal. So it sounds a bit as though from the very start, de Vere and Molyneux faced a desperate task. De Vere and Molyneux chose the Foss Way as their route south. Without wanting to lessen the dramatic tension at all, any of you in this country or visiting, find a moment to find a stretch of the Foss Way if you can. It's as straight as a die, not a corner shop in sight. As he marched south along the Foss Way, Gloucester snapped at his heels. De Vere turned again and again and tried to take him on, but many of his men deserted in the process. So with increasing desperation, they drove on further south, looking for a way to cross the River Thames, hemmed in by the appellants. Now, at some point, they identified their best possible escape route, Radcott Bridge in Oxfordshire, south of the Windrush Valley and the Cotswolds. Then they'd go along the south bank of the Thames and so on to Windsor, where two grannies with a handbag and a tea cosy could hold off anybody. When de Vere and Molyneux arrived at Radcott Bridge, it was dark and it was foggy. And then they found it had been a trap all along, because there waiting for them was Bolingbroke and his army. De Vere's spirit was equal to the situation. He ordered his men to stand their ground, and his trumpets, pipes and drums to start playing, and in the words of the Chronicle, with a cheerful voice exhorted his men to prepare for instant battle. Prepare for instant battle, men! Sadly, the men of Cheshire were feeling anything but cheerful. When they saw Bolingbroke's banners, the banners of the House of Lancaster, they bottled it. Sir Thomas Mortimer arrived at this point with the vanguard of the forces of the Earl of Arundel, and the brave men of Cheshire started laying down their arms. At this point, de Vere decided it was time to leave. He jumped off his heavy war horse, onto a lighter horse, and, discarding bits of metal as he went, gauntlets, breastplates, shin guards, that sort of thing, rode his horse into the river and got clean away, despite the archers on the bridge. Now Thomas Molyneux, seeing his boss take to his heels, decided to do the same thing, but Mortimer had his eye on him, and he attacked him. Hand to hand they fought until Molyneux was forced into the river. Above him, on the bank, with his archers by him, Mortimer was not feeling emollient. Out of that water, sir, and throw yourself on our mercy, or you are going to die. If I climb out, do you promise to spare my life? No, I do not. But unless you climb out, you will die straight away. Well then, if there be no other solution, allow me to come up there and I will fight you or some other... And so I will die like a man. Take your chances, Molyneux. So Molyneux started climbing out of the river, up the bank. As he was so clambering, Mortimer grabbed him by the bottom of his helmet, pulled up hard, tore the helmet off, and then drove his dagger through his skull, deep into his brain. So much, ladies and gentlemen, for the world of chivalry. Things have changed since William the Marshal, Anyone remember the Battle of Lincoln in 1217? Anyone remember that just one noble bloke got killed, the Count of Persh? And that was really a mistake. Oops, sorry. Stabbed you through the eye holes of your helmet. I was only trying to take you for a ransom. Now, here we have people being tricked to climb out of rivers 
and then being stabbed sneakily through the brain. For shame, Thomas Mortimer, for shame. Father. Yes, son. Did you hear about the knight whose left side was cut off? Ooh, no. Well, the truth is, he's all right now. <laughs> a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Devere, by the way, headed west. Now just a poor boy having squandered his existence, running scared, laying low, Seeking out the poorer quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know, and got himself over the channel to Bruges. So much for the king's cause. Richard had been skewered good and proper, and there was no escaping his fate now. He fled to the Tower of London where grim-faced, the five appellants and five hundred of their men joined him, carefully closing and locking the gates behind them. Richard received the appellants in the chapel at the tower. We can be pretty sure the whole thing wasn't pleasant for him. Gloucester and Arundel withdrew their allegiance for the duration of the conversation, basically telling Richard, therefore, that he was no longer king and they were looking at the alternatives. There was a fair degree of blubbing on Richard's side and it's highly likely that as far as Gloucester was concerned, the most attractive option was that he should take over. As far as he was concerned, Richard had had his chance and fluffed it. Next in line was Roger Mortimer, and he was 13, and no one wanted a minority. Then there was John and Gaunt, unpopular, and not here. Then Gloucester's elder brother, Edmund of Langley, now Duke of York, a feeble nobody. So, QED, Gloucester was the first available viable candidate. What could be easier? Job done. Sorted. Fortunately for Richard, this was too much of a stretch for the other appellants. Bolingbroke in particular could not see his father Gaunt's claim so easily passed over. And it's quite possible that it was Bolingbroke that stood between Richard and his deposition. Because when it was all over, with Gloucester reluctantly confirming Richard as king, and the whole question of the appeal delayed again until the February 1388 Parliament, Richard asked Bolingbroke to stay behind for supper. Maybe he thought he might have an ally. If so, he was mainly deceived. But he was right to realise that Bolingbroke's instincts were far less hard than were Gloucester's. In January, though, came widespread arrests of Richard's household knights and the king's leading supporters. Among them was Simon Burley, the king's confidant. And so here we are back to the beginning. It's February 1388... We're in the White Chamber in the Palace of Westminster, Richard's on the throne, the doors open, the five appellants, Gloucester, Warwick, Arundel, Nottingham, Bolingbroke enter, arms linked, dressed in cloth of gold. The Parliament became known as the Merciless Parliament. And once again, what we have to decide is, what was worse, the disease or the cure? <laughs> <laughs> 
The peel itself was not short. The clerk of the Parliament read it out, and it took over two hours, making it quite clear in detail what Richard had done wrong. It must have been an agony of humiliation for Richard, sitting there in front of the assembled Parliament, having a strip slowly torn off him for over two hours, especially for a man as acutely aware of his own dignity as was Richard. One of the problems the appellants then had was that, with the exception of Brembra, all the people they'd appealed had legged it. So, for each of three days, the appellants made their accusation publicly, and the accused was supposed to step forward and plead. But after three days, four of them had not appeared. Then there was another hitch: the legal advice was that these guys could not be convicted in their absence under English common law. So de Vere, de la Pole, the Archbishop of York, and Tresillian were convicted by some ancient Roman law precedent of conviction by absence. They were condemned to death and declared forfeit of all their lands. All of this, as you can probably pick up, was constitutionally deeply, deeply dodgy, which left the tough-minded Nicholas Brembra. Brembra may well have stayed because he was well aware that he'd done absolutely nothing wrong. He'd lent the king a bit of money. That was all. So he was going to tough it out. Standing in front of Parliament as the charges were read out, Brembera declared loudly and confidently, "Guilty of nothing." He shouted out that he would defend himself in battle, but the appellants wanted no risks, so the claim was contemptuously dismissed. Richard knew quite well what was going on. Here was a witch hunt, not a trial, and he intervened. Arguing for Brembra's life, the response was a storm of gauntlets from three hundred and five of the men in the White Chamber, thrown down on the floor in support of the accusation against Brembra. Eventually, a council of twelve was appointed to examine the accusations against him. The subtext being that their job was to find whatever evidence was needed to convict the guy. So while this miscarriage of justice was all going on, a strange-looking man was seen in Westminster, living in a rented room overlooking the White Chamber, observing people coming in and coming out, questioning people on the goings-on. He had poor, ragged clothing and a heavy beard. One morning, as Gloucester growled in the White Chamber, there were cries of, "We have him! We have him!" Because the strange-looking man was, in fact, Judge Robert Tresillian. One of the accused, and on being recognised, he had shed his false beard and fled to Westminster Abbey, claiming sanctuary. No one, I guess, will be surprised that Gloucester was having none of this, and Tresillian was dragged in front of Gloucester and condemned to death. He did not die well. He was dragged on a hurdle to the gallows at Tyburn to be hanged. But once at the scaffold, he fought and screamed and had to be physically forced up the steps. Still, he struggled, and as his clothes were searched, all manner of superstitious charms were found until he was hanged completely naked. Still, he struggled, so that the executioner stepped forward and finished the whole charade by brutally cutting his throat. Back to Brembra and the search for a conviction at any price. In their desperation, the Council of Twelve went to the London Guilds. The best they got. Was that the guilds believed that, as far as the crimes he was accused of, Brembra was quote, aware rather than ignorant of them. 
On this evidence, the flimsiest, the wafer-thin flimsiest of evidence that he had not warned others of the forthcoming treason, Brember was convicted. He was also dragged to the gallows at Tyburn on the traditional hurdle. But unlike Tresillian, Brember dried well. As he went, he recited prayers from the Office of the Dead. As he stood on the gallows, the chronicles reported that, quote, his contrition and piety moved almost all the bystanders to tears. Brember died not because of his treachery, but because of his loyalty. He died not for his vices, but for his virtues. The appellants now went after the rest of the king's household, on the good old principle that kicking a man when he's down will help remind him not to get back up again later. So, remember those judges that Richard had involved in legal counsel after the wonderful Parliament. You might remember that Justice Bealnap had said that by helping Richard to a judgment of treason, the judges had effectively condemned themselves to death. Well, he was absolutely right, in principle. The appellants went after the lot of them, and although they pleaded they'd been forced into it, they were sentenced to death. But then a stream of folks came to their defence, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Bishop of Winchester, the 22-year-old Queen Anne of Bohemia. And for once the appellants relented and the sentences were commuted to exile. By this stage, signs of disunity were beginning to appear within the appellants' ranks. Not all of them had argued for the death penalty for the justices, though we don't know which ones had objected. But where the fire grew hottest was with Simon Burley. Burley was now 52, relatively old by the standards of the time. His military experience had started at the Battle of Winchelsea in 1350. Just before the Battle of Nahera in 1367, he'd conducted a night raid for the Black Prince. He'd been tutor and chamberlain to Richard since Richard was knee-height to a grasshopper, his friend, adviser and confidant since at least 1376. He'd organised Richard's marriage to his beloved Anne of Bohemia and throughout that time he'd staunchly supported Richard and told the young king that he was special, God's anointed, that his word was law. Now he faced the biggest fight of his life. He stood accused of misusing his influence over the king, of usurping royal power for his own ends. Many in the chamber looked at Burley, soldier and courtier, and they doubted the justice of the appellant's claims. Burley had done well from his position, sure, but nothing like the indignity of de Vere being made Duke of o but nothing like the indignity of de Vere being made Duke of Ireland. They wondered whether in prosecuting Burley a line was being crossed, an injustice was being done. By this stage the proceedings had been going on for almost three months. We're at the 27th of April, 1388. In the chamber the Duke of Gloucester's elder brother Edmund of York rose to his feet and tried to stop the bus. He declared that Burley had always been loyal to the king and the realm and challenged anyone who disagreed with him to single combat. At this point, the debate became a battle of the deeply sophisticated subtleties of a brother's argument, similar to so many arguments of my own youth. So, Brother Gloucester yelled back in fury that Burley was false to his allegiance, and he'd prove it at the end of his sword. York turned white with anger and shouted that his brother was a liar. 
History does not record if he also claimed that Gloucester's pants were on fire. But it does record that there would have been a brotherly scrap if at this point Richard had not intervened and told everyone to calm down. So we know that the split between the three senior appellants on one hand, Gloucester, Warwick and Arundel, and the two junior appellants on the other, Bolingbroke and Nottingham, was now out in the open. Bolingbroke and Nottingham supported the Duke of York in this encounter, favouring mercy for Burley. We know very little of Richard's reactions and feelings throughout the three months of the merciless Parliament. Since the Tears in the Tower episode, Richard had clearly resolved not to let his emotions show. There was a kind of deal in place, which had become a formula. The appellants made sure they accused the king's councillors of being the baddies, rather than the king. Everyone knew they really meant the king as well, but nobody actually said it, and so face to a degree was saved. So day after day, day after day, Richard sat nor breath nor motion, soaking it up, acting the king. But now, with his childhood mentor standing in the dock, the mask cracked just for a moment. He intervened and begged the appellants for mercy for his faithful retainer. His wife Anne threw herself in front of the appellants and also begged for his life on her knees. But Gloucester was implacable. On the 5th of May, 1388, Simon Burley lost his head at Tower Hill. It was now as though a candle had been blown out by the fury of this last vindictive breath. Remaining knights and councillors got away with fines and reprimands. The appellant's victory seemed complete. The king awarded the appellants £20,000 for the costs of maintaining their army during the affair. There was a service in Westminster Abbey where Richard renewed his coronation oath and all the lords renewed their homage. The final end of Parliament banquet passed off without incident and everyone rode away. It all seemed to be finished. The appellants were in control of the king's council the household had been thoroughly purged, the king was contrite, the ship of state was back on an even keel. As a little codicil to this week's podcast, I thought I'd finish with the outcomes for Richard's special crew. Michael de la Poole had fled to Paris and remained there until his death in the following year, 1389. Alexander Neville, Archbishop of York, was something of a problem. As a churchman, he'd been deprived of his temporalities rather than actually condemned to death, because he didn't really do that to churchmen. And then, inconveniently, he was captured in June 1388 at Tynemouth, in northwest of England, trying to get a boat across the North Sea. So, the Pope Urban made him Archbishop of St Andrews in Scotland, which, since there was already an Archbishop of St Andrews, according to the other competing post, Clement, was a way, in fact, of giving him the sack. So Neville went into exile and ended his days in 1392 as a parish priest in Louvain, Belgium. And what of Robert de Vere, Richard's closest of companions, his brother-in-arms? De Vere had holed up in Bruges, but was moved on by the local count and turned up in Paris at the court of Charles VI, along with Neville and de la Poole. But in life, you reap as you sow. De Vere had a powerful enemy at the French court, Angerard de Cousy. Angerard was the father of de Vere's estranged wife, who de Vere had repudiated rather brutally in favour of his love affair with a lady of Richard's household. So Angerard forced him out of court. 
I suspect de Vere and Neville kept each other company since they both ended up in Louvain. Richard had not forgotten them. In February 1392, he tried to have them return, but his council wouldn't wear it. And then in August 1392, de Vere, still only a young man of 30, was killed by a wild boar at a hunt. The most gruesome Edward and Gaveston-like postscript is that in 1395, Richard had de Vere exhumed and returned to England. Richard organised a ceremony at the family's burial place in Essex and invited a wide range of guests and various abbots and bishops were there, as well as de Vere's mum, of course. Before the body was reburied, to demonstrate his undying love, Richard had the coffin opened. Presumably de Vere was not looking his best by this stage after three years in a coffin, but nonetheless Richard wanted to gaze one more time at his face and hideously kiss his fingers, which apparently he did, which in my humble opinion is just a tiny bit gross. But hey, the English have always been accused of being a cold, reserved bunch, so what do I know? Richard had without doubt learned a lesson. He was by no means a stupid man. Just as he'd worn a mask throughout the merciless Parliament, so he would learn to wear a mask for the next eight years. But there was no forgiveness in his heart. He would watch and wait and plan and scheme. And Gloucester, Warwick, Arundel, Bolingbroke and Nottingham would always remain in that gaze. Next week we'll continue the reign and see how Richard fares as a king as he takes over his own governance. For the moment it therefore just remains for me to thank this week's donators. So first extra special thanks to monthly donators Amy, Cathy, Oak, Matthew. So exciting. And to all this week's donators, several of whom have done so before. And thanks to all of you. So this week we had Eric, Philip, Henry, who suggests a Montepede drinking game, by the way, which sounds fun. Paul, Jonas, Craig, Gareth, Thomas. Then we have Data Software House, welcome back, and Mode Knit. Now, when I was a tiny wee lad, there was an advert in the bus home for wool that's read, A Fine Knit. How we giggled. Annie, you can knit me anything you like. I'm a sucker for a good knit. So thanks everyone for listening, for all your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes and Facebook. Good luck and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.